Hey there, this is Damien Blinkinsop with another episode of The Quantified Body. Today we're looking at meditation. This is a tool that I really value in my life now, but it hasn't always been that way. It's been a bit of a struggle. For me, there are two big upside benefits for me personally. These are N equals one upsides. Maybe it's not as important for everyone. The biggest upside is what I do with my life. Since I've been meditating, it has helped me to make better decisions from a place of greater objectivity, clearness, and calm. So it really has changed the way I make decisions and the quality of my decisions, what I decide to spend my time on. Sam Harris is an author I follow who speaks about a variety of topics and meditation and spirituality is one of them and how it can be usefully applied to our lives from a more objective uh, perspective. One of the things he has said is most of us spend every waking moment lost in the movie of our lives. So when I look back at my life, I definitely think that that was more prominent before I started meditating. And I really want to consciously decide what I do with my time every day to make sure that I'm living the life that I want. Another benefit, of course, is just stress reduction and not getting submerged in the flow of stress and rumination, which has negative health impacts down the line. And stress management in general has been very important to me. And I think it's really something that is underrated, despite that we talk about it a lot. I think very few people actively try to do things to reduce stress in their lives because they feel a bit powerless against it. They don't feel like they have clear tools to target stress and reduce it, despite the many, many benefits of it. And I think another reason that people don't work on stress is that they don't have any measure of stress, any useful measure to understand how stressed they are and what kind of impact this is really having on their lives. So part of my journey has been trying to understand stress better and manage it better. And certainly meditation is one of the tools I use to reduce my stress levels. Of course, there are other benefits, and we are continuously getting updates about research showing that the brain benefits, there are actual brain physical structural changes from consistent meditation practice. I'm not yet sure myself personally about those long-term benefits, and that's definitely something we're going to explore in future episodes, understanding how we could either quantify or validate that we're actually getting some of those longer-term benefits that are spoken about often in the research. Okay, but meditation, there's a big, big problem with meditation, and it's probably why you aren't meditating consistently, even despite that it's getting a lot more popular, a lot more people are meditating. But even if you want to, even if your friends are doing it, or it's something you've tried many times, most people like start and stop, they find it very difficult to get a consistent meditation practice in place. It is really challenging to get started with it. It was very challenging for me. I failed many times. I was off and on for many years. I've tried different forms, mantra-based forms like transcendental meditation and the mindfulness-focused techniques, more like mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR, which was pioneered by John Kabat-Zinn. However, people really struggle with it because they don't know how well they are doing at it and they feel frustrated because they feel they're not doing well at it. And I can certainly relate to that. I felt like 
I wasn't actually doing a very good job of meditation and I didn't really understand if I was achieving what I was supposed to be achieving, what would be the upside benefits. So I think this intangibleness of meditation, this lack of clarity about what the benefits, the rewards are going to be for us. And if we're actually making progress, if we're doing it properly, because it's all in our heads, it's relatively difficult for people to understand that. And these are one of the reasons we find it difficult to be motivated to practice consistently. A big concern I've had for a long time is whether my time meditating was productive, whether I was getting real results from it and that I was doing it properly. So going back to Sam Harris again, he's a longtime meditator and he's a neuroscientist. He's written a lot about this. He's got a book about it called Waking Up. Uh, I recommend you read that if you're interested in meditation. It's a great book. I'll put it in the show notes. In his own experience, after years of practicing meditation, he realized that he hadn't been meditating, and that he had just been lost in thought. Now, putting years into practice of meditation, say 20 minutes a day, and finding out that I've actually not been doing it properly, and I'm not getting a lot of the benefits I thought I was getting, is not my idea of a good way to pass my time. And this is really what today is about, what this episode is about. Because since September 2014, I've been consistent. I've been trying to meditate off and on since 2008, somewhere around there. Sometimes I would get for a week and or even longer, say a few months, and then I would drop off the bandwagon and it would disappear for the rest of the year. And maybe the next year I'd get back on it again. And I found that a lot of it was due to my environment, changing environment, different lifestyle factors. But most of all, I just didn't have clarity about this, enough clarity to stick to it. So the device we're discussing today has helped me to get more clarity, more motivation, and see that I'm actually getting the results and refine my technique in a measurable way so that when I'm meditating, I actually feel like I'm doing it properly or I get some feedback that I'm doing it properly and it's getting the kind of results I'm looking for. So I use this first thing in the morning to reset my mind and prepare for the day. I meditate, then I plan my day afterwards with a clear head. So I'm talking about the Muse device. This is a consumer EEG, that's an electroencephalography, which records electrical activity of the brain. You do this with Muse Calm, which is an app in your iPhone or Android, and it gives you direct feedback on how calm your mind is. The company behind this device is Interaxon. They were set up in 2009. So it's been six years that they've been working on this idea and some others related to EEG use by consumers. And when I first started using this device, it was a little annoying sometimes. It was difficult to connect to the phone via Bluetooth. So I put the band on my head and I would try to sync the device and often it wouldn't be getting a clear signal. And I think I mentioned this in the interview. So it's been a little while since the interview and there's been some upgrades to the app and that's been fixed now. It connects quickly every time that annoyance is gone. So I just wanted to make that clear. For today's show notes on thequantifiedbody.net, I've added my personal experience and use with Muse because I thought it might be helpful for you guys. So I've added a video where I walk you through how I use it in my daily routine, my morning routine. And what I found gives me the best CARM scores. So the scores that the app is giving you based on your EEG output. I've been using it consistently for over a year now. So that's a fair amount of data. I'll also put some screenshots of my results from the app, from the tracking 
on the page, you can get an idea of what can be achieved after a year or what may not be achieved after a year. And of course, there'll be all the usual biomarker information and tools and guest information with all the links on that page also. You can check out the device itself if you go to verquantifiedbody.net forward slash muse, that's M-U-S-E, to take a look at the device itself. Today's guest is Ariel Garten, the CEO and co-founder of Interaxon, the people behind Muse. She has a pretty unusual profile. She's a neuroscientist, she's a psychotherapist, and a fashion designer. So she's known for integrating art and neuroscience. And that's something we talk about in this interview. More to the academic side, her research was in hippocampal neurogenesis. So that's basically growing and regenerating the hippocampus at Toronto's esteemed Crimble Neuroscience Center. She lectures about neuroscience and meditation frequently at many prestigious events. This includes top universities like MIT, uh, top health tech conferences like Exponential Medicine from Singularity University, and TED, TED. She's also a serial entrepreneur across different industries and was recently selected as one of the nation's top entrepreneurial women by Ernst & Young. So Muse has been really popular and really successful to date. So it's, it's really an example of one of these tracking devices. I feel that's really making a difference amongst many, many tracking devices which are struggling. We're kind of at the bleeding edge of health tech and these consumer tracking devices right now. Many of them are failing just because it's new technology not really that accurate enough or convenient enough and so on. But Muse is one of these devices that actually is making it work and it's becoming popular as a byproduct of that. So it's great to have Ariel on to discuss what they've been doing with Muse and learn more about how this device has been put together, the inner workings of it, so we can understand the accuracy of it, what we're dealing with here. If you want the show notes with all the biomarkers, the tools, everything like that in your email inbox every week, go to verquantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter and pop your email in there. We make extensive, simplified, done-for-you notes for this show because I know we get into a lot of tech details. We like to simplify it and get it down to the really important top 20% kind of things, the biomarkers that you can make use of, the actionable stuff, the tools and tactics that we discuss in the interviews. So these show notes really do help your understanding and help you benefit from these shows a lot. So if you haven't checked them out before, go check them out on thequantifiedbody.net or sign up for that newsletter. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So could you share a little bit about how you got became you know, part of Interaxon and you got to do what you're doing today? Sure. I am so lucky to be doing what I do today. I, I have to tell you, I'm really, really thrilled. I founded Interaxon with my co-founders, Christian Trevor, uh, about six years ago. It's actually our sixth birthday tomorrow. And prior to that, I was working in a research lab where we used uh, primitive brain-computer interface software to allow people to create concerts with their own mind. So you're actually creating musical experiences. From there, we went on to allow people to control physical stuff with their mind in very basic ways. 
and this entire time recognized that we had this amazing technology that allows you to literally peer inside your mind, connect your mind to a device, and then do something. And so we created Interaxon to really find out what that something is that we could do with it and bring a product to market that was ultimately going to help people's lives. So is the innovation with Interaxon, as I understand, it's because you're enabling consumers to get in touch with this, whereas a lot of the devices beforehand have been clinical. They're not exactly very accessible. Is what you're doing based on trying to make this more widely available or are there some other specific innovations involved that you've brought? So there's a lot of innovations involved and certainly being more widely available is one of them. So news is, for people who don't know about news, news is a clinical grade EEG. It's uh, seven sensors that deliver four channels of data, two on the forehead and two behind ears, tracks your brain activity in real time and sends it to your smartphone or tablet. From there, uh, the application that Muse comes with is a basically meditation tool, a focused attention training tool, teaching you to improve your attention, decrease your stress, and learn to self-monitor and self-regulate. In terms of the innovation, Muse is clinical-grade EEG. It is dry system, so it's like very sleek, very slim, very easy to wear, and it's mobile. So our innovations around getting EEG to fit easily on any head, getting something that really is just a part of your daily life. It looks like any other wearable device, like a Jawbone app or a Fitbit. It's a some little device that you you know wear part, as part of your daily life or at home. I sometimes wear mine out to parties, and people think that it's a cute <laughs> part of my outfit. <laughs> <laughs> so are you actually using it to track your brain waves while you're at a party, or is it more for the decoration? I have to admit that I sometimes do that, yes, because I am a neuro nerd. <laughs> well, I'd be interested if you've learned anything about yourself, because I've been using it, of course, just for the meditation with your app, Calm, since September now. Um, so I've been using it specifically for that. But I, I mean, I wanted to get into also like, this is basically a consumer EEG device that you've made available to people. So I understand that you're going to be able to add other different applications on top of it. Today, we have the meditation app called Calm, but there's potential to add different apps as also. Yeah, so we actually have an ecosystem of hundreds of developers. The SDK is open, so anybody can build on top of the Muse platform. And we have uh, people doing things like drowsiness detection, building simple game-based interactions, using it for more complex healthcare needs that are also game-based. So there's a group out of kind of Europe that is doing a beautiful application for kids with anxiety. There's two groups that are creating lovely applications for kids with ADHD and through gaming, they actually improve their ADD, ADHD symptoms. The first one has gone through the um, their first trial. And then we have over probably 50 different research institutions that we're working with that are using Muse. So Mayo Clinic, for example, has just begun a study using Muse to decrease stress during cancer care. NYU has been using Muse to look at learning and memory. So sort of variations across the board. Some of them are, are just fun gamey things. Some of them are really serious medical applications. And then, of course, there is our application that we've built in Calm um, that comes shipped with the device. And that is a beautiful experience that helps you to understand and improve your own mind. That's excellent. I didn't actually uh, realize that you had as many projects out there. I guess, I mean, a lot of these we don't hear about because they're, they're done more in very specific niche areas. So unless you're actually looking into the clinical applications, I guess. Are these with doctors or are these in universities primarily that it's being used at the moment? Are there any doctors taking interest in? We have quite a number of doctors that actually use Muse as part of their practice. So we have a pediatrician who has a Muse room, and when kids come in, she can um, send them to the Muse room to do focused attention training. We have other doctors that recommend Muse for issues like sleep, anxiety, depression, 
in North America, if you have a naturopath in, or in the U.S., if you have a naturopath in your clinic, the naturopath can actually sell these at the front desk. And then we have healthcare institutions that we're working with to do broad scale studies. So Baycrest, it's a geriatric care facility in Canada. They're doing a study on uses effect of uh, blood pressure and affect. Mayo, as I said, is doing their study on stress and cancer care patients. I'm trying to think of which other ones I'm allowed to mention, but there's quite a number of them going on. Yeah, that's a lot. So I want to talk more about the meditation one, uh, because that's the one that's more widely available to people right now. But for some of these applications, because like some of these things other people would be interested in just like increasing focus and attention and things like that, will these be more widely available or are they going to kind of stay in these niche, niche applications like physicians working with them? I guess you've got a more private program working with those, or is there someone somewhere someone could go to download these and use them with, with the, the uh, head, the music? So these are all in very, very early, early prototypes that people are building themselves. Sort of from a year forward, you're going to start to see these things enter into the news ecosystem. And some of these studies that are running, like the uh, Mayo Clinic study, for example, that's using MuseCom, that's using the existing software that comes with Muse. And they're applying it to these various healthcare settings. And when a doctor recommends um, Muse, he's recommending the existing application, MuseCom, to help his patients with sleep or anxiety or depression. So they're using MuseCom and then seeing what the impact is on insomnia and some of these outcomes. But they're using basically, is it mindfulness techniques they're using? Yeah, so... Muse basically teaches you how to meditate. So as a doctor, if somebody comes in with heart disease, one of the main prescriptions for them actually is, you know, change your diet and learn how to meditate so you can manage your own mind and decrease your stress. And patients will then say, okay, how do I do that? And they walk away and absolutely nothing happens. So now they can come into a doctor's office and the doctor will say, well, you should meditate and forget about even saying you should meditate, you should use this device. This device is going to teach you how to calm yourself, improve your focus, manage your urges and your cravings, manage the stress in your life. And I will know that you've used it because you can come back, you can show me your data, you can show me how you're improving, we can talk about how this works for you. And it becomes a really actionable tool. Right. And the reason I purchased this as soon as it came out was because meditation is one of those things that everyone would like to do and everyone would like to do it properly. But I think it's very, I've been doing it for many years. And honestly, I found it difficult to know how effectively I'm meditating. And I think this is something that a lot of people struggle with when they're trying to meditate. So it was really, really an interesting device for that reason for me to get hold of. I want to talk to you a little bit about, first of all, the EG, you said it's clinical EG. So has it been gone through specific tests to show that it's exactly the same output as the bigger contraptions that people are used to when they go into a hospital, for example, or are there slight differences? What does it mean that it's clinical EEG? So we've had third parties, hospitals, go through the process of um, comparing news to Biosemi and to Brain Vision Act Champ. Um, these are thirty to $50,000 systems that are clinically used. And their analysis has come back that it is not statistically different from a clinical grade EEG. And so to be fair, there's only four channels. So in those four channels, you're getting the same readings as you would get from a clinical EEG. We can't see the rest of your head where you may, um, in a clinical EEG, also have sensors on the top of your head or on the back of your head. Typically, how many channels are there on a, on a hospital-based machine? And so it depends. There can be anywhere from 19 channels, 32 is, is common, or all the way up to 128 or 200 and more, depending on depending on the, uh, the application. Right. So is it kind of like uh, sensitivity, being able to pick up more 
what would be the difference between having more or less channels? Um, so it really depends on where on the head you need to measure, measure and what you're trying to do. More of anything is typically better, but we found with four channels, you can actually get really great data. So we're able to look at the difference between left, right, back to front. Um, we can do some very, very, very basic mapping on source localization, where the signal is coming from the head once you have four channels. Um, and for the applications that we've been building, this is some sort of perfect channels for, for the perfect fit uh, for the outcomes. And no gooby gel and no wires and no doctor on the other side of the room looking at your data. Right, right, exactly. I mean, I think that's the important thing to emphasize here, that it's a lot more convenient than the standard EEG systems where you have to put gel on your head and it's kind of messy. But this thing, you can just put it on and take it off as you want. One interesting thing just that I noticed, um, I was wearing headphones where, I don't know if you know this too, but I imagine you do, but I was wearing headphones, uh, so obviously with a wire, and I found that sometimes I wouldn't be able to get a, a signal when I was wearing the headphones. It was irritating me. And then I realized it was because it must have been an electrical signal coming through the wire in the headphones. So if I basically, I've got these other air ones now and I don't get that. So I don't know if that's something you've seen before. Is that a known? I'm just wondering what kind of confounders could people come across and or things that they should avoid? I think another one is that you shouldn't be moving, right? You have to be still. Yeah, so EEG is very sensitive. EMG muscle activity is much, much louder than EEG. So in order to use an EEG, you have to just remain quite still and relax the muscles of your face and neck. So that's the main confounder. And then if you're in an insanely electrically noisy environment, uh, you may find that your signal is having some issues. But overall, that should be fine because the electrical noise will be affecting both the ground and the reading channels. So ultimately, that should cancel itself out. But in most environments, it's pretty good. You can even do it on an airplane. Sometimes when it starts to get uh, really turbulent, then your then your signal gets has some issue. But overall, I need on the plane. Great, great. So is it best suited? I mean, it sounds like it's best suited for meditation where you're really not doing anything. Somebody other applicants, if you wanted to increase your focus, like say attention on a task, would are there applications that are potentially coming out later that we'll be able to use to do that? I don't know. If you're working on your computer, you're moving your head a little bit right? Uh, from side to side, probably not thinking about it much. Yeah. So actually the best thing to improve your focus on a task is to do the existing application. You calm. It is literally a focused attention training tool. That's what it's been built for. So when you use, you focus your attention on a single object, your breath. And as soon as your mind wanders, you get a notification. And then it's your job to bring your attention back to the single object. And the more you're able to maintain that state of focused attention, the more you're rewarded by points and birds and all sorts of fun stuff. I joined a study that we had internally um, really early on. And after my first few days of musing, I'm doing a long-form essay. And typically, these things take me three or four hours to do because I'm distracted. I think about something else. I obsessively check my email. And this time, I just, like, started typing and kept typing. And I had a slight urge to do something else. Now, I thought I'm coming back to what I'm doing. And it was just phenomenal for my focus. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of research on the benefits of mindfulness meditation for increasing these things. So I'm wondering, like, when you wear your device and you're in other scenarios, what have you learned anything interesting from it? You said you like sometimes wear it to parties or anything like that. Are you able to have you learned any insights about yourself or anything you've learned from that? There's a couple really fun examples, and I definitely so I've noticed uh, the correlation of my brain activity over the day and with weather. Prior to it raining and uh, when there are changes in pressure systems, I see big, big decreases in my beta activity, decreases in my gamma activity. I'm like a human barometer in some ways. It's quite cool. 
another like one really fun story. I was actually on stage and projecting my brainwaves live during a presentation and it was in Paris. Presentation was in English and then it came to Q and A. Somebody asked me a question in English. My focus clicked a little. I answered. It was not you know, not a big deal. Some I then tried to answer another question in French. Being Canadian, I marginally speak <laughs> French and I thought I could show yeah. off to the audience. Um, and I, the audience sort of started to like rustle and giggle and I didn't realize why. And it wasn't my French, it was my brain activity. So my level of beta activity had just shot straight through the roof as I was trying to figure out how to answer in French. And then wow. as I started to answer, you could see it come back down again as I kind of gone through the process of doing the processing. And the audience figured this out well before I did. It was behind me, I couldn't even see it. And so then they started asking me questions in French and just like playing <laughs> with my brain activity, hacking my own brain on the stage. It was really cool. So taking a little bit of a step back, so you, you described a few different waves there. So the Muse is tracking four different types of waves. Could you give a bit of background for people at home like who aren't used to these different types of waves and what the purposes of them are? Sure. So Muse tracks full-spectrum EEG activity from about half a hertz, that's as low as EEG is ever going to go, up to... EG, we tend to talk about ending in around 50 or 60 hertz. Uh, 60 hertz or 50 hertz if you're in Europe is where you end up with just line noise from the electrical activity in your lights, et cetera. Um, muscle activity tends to be from 40 hertz up to hundreds and hundreds of hertz. So EG is typically broken up into different bands. Delta activity is the lowest wave activity that happens predominantly during sleep. Theta activity is from about 3 to 7 hertz. That happens when you are dreaming or highly relaxed and also during sleep. Alpha activity is from 8 to 12 hertz, and that is a both a relaxed state and a focused state. And then beta is from 13 up to 35. That's intense cognitive processing, so you're thinking about something, your brain is working. Um, and then from 35 up, and there's debate as to how far that up goes. Some people say it even goes up to 200 hertz. You have gamma activity, and gamma is uh, associated with consciousness and a bunch of other very fun things, and sometimes also seen in the meditation literature. When you go through and you get an EG, often it's broken up into these bands, and somebody will say, okay, well, you're falling asleep. You know, we're seeing an increase in delta activity, or you're processing. We can see a lot of beta activity right here. So me trying to speak French is very beta, and me relaxing is very alpha. When we run our algorithms for Muse and Muse Calm, what we're looking for is a state of focused attention. And we're looking a little bit at this band-based activity, but we're also doing machine learning on your brain activity. And so we're not saying, okay, well, you are in beta activity, so you must be focused. We're saying, all right, let's look holistically at what your brain is doing, and let's build a model for your brain that we can then apply much more subtle kinds of um, thinking and interactions around rather than just, are you in beta? Are you in alpha? Right, that's interesting because I, w I wanted to ask you about the, how the algorithm worked, just for the people at home. Well, when you first put this application on, you're going to start a meditation session. It asks you to calibrate, so it asks you to think about some things. So you're trying to generate beta, I guess, at that time, or the equivalent of beta, like basically a lot of thinking activity as a control, and then you try to compare that. So is it because like brains are very personal? Is that why you have to take that approach? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. So in the you do a calibration, so we are looking for the baseline that day. We're not just looking at beta, we're looking at all sorts of different things in your brain at that moment. And then we're seeing how that compares both to sessions that you've done previously and to 
the session that you're about to do. So we're able to see a real snapshot of your brain at that moment in time. Because not only does your brain differ from day to day, it also differs at different points in the day. It differs based on how much caffeine you've had, how much sleep you've had, the environment around you at that moment. And so we take all of that um, into account via your brain activity in deciding how you're going to respond to the to the algorithm experience. So would basically it kind of gives you a score, right? It gives you percentages of calm. Would that vary? Would it be relative for each session? Is that what you're saying? Like, say it was a different time of day um, or something like that. It will say, but this time of day, you're doing, you're basically doing well. Yeah. So your, your calm score is relative to your calibration. The immediate calibration immediately before? Exactly. You do calibration every session. Right. I guess the important thing is there is like when, when you give any instructions to think about things, you have to do that properly. Otherwise that won't work as effectively. So I guess... Like mindfulness-based meditation is the type of meditation that has the most research done it. I don't know if you've compared it to mantra or some of the other types of meditations and if you specifically chose mindfulness because there was more research or could you talk a little bit about why you made the decisions to design the application the way it is? Sure. So the application that you're doing is uh, specifically a focused attention training, focusing on your breath. And this action of focusing on your breath tends to be a really first-line thing that you learn when you learn mindfulness and you learn to meditate. Once you build your state of focus attention, you can then start to apply it to anything. And you can move your attention around your body and do a body scan, for example. Or you can move your attention around your environment um, and do open monitoring. Or listen for your own thoughts and put your attention on your own thoughts. So with Muse, you're really doing a core exercise that teaches you this muscle of attention and builds it so that you can then go on through the range of experiences, um, the application or the range of teachings that are available in mindfulness and meditation. The application that we've built works very specifically with this focus on your breath. So it you know, doesn't work with the body scan. It doesn't work with the mantra meditation, though we will have uh, more access exercises like body scans being added to um, use calm great and you've just actually come out with an upgrade of the original app mm-hmm. i think i noticed you used to have a difficulty level so i think they've disappeared now is that correct or are they still there and i just can't find them <laughs> no difficulty levels yes difficulty levels have disappeared and i think we've replaced it with um volume on the wind Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. So could you just talk about, like, are there some things you've learned over the last six months which you integrated into the new app, which were interesting? Absolutely. One of the, there's sort of two classes of people who love Muse. One is experienced meditators, and we would hear things from them like, we don't want the volume, we don't want the real-time feedback, we just want to see after the fact how we did. And so we now have a volume switch, so you can turn off um, the different sounds selectively be rewarded by a sound or just go and see your score at the end. Um, the other class of people who love news are people who kind of know they should meditate, but really have no idea how or they started. And it's really hard to stick to a practice. And one of the things that we've really learned from that audience is about the motivational architecture and what's required to really encourage you into the experiences um, of meditating using news and how you create an experience that is motivating and sticky so you just want to come back and do it and you just want to do it every day and before you notice you've built yourself a meditation practice and that thing that you know you should do is the thing that you're actually doing yeah so you've integrated a little bit of gaming in there and the birds are still there Mm -hmm. as well as the wind okay great so yeah these birds come along when you've been really good and you've been uh, calm for a while 
and they start chirping. So I think that's one of the things you're saying, like you can turn off the volume on the birds. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Because some people are saying that was a distraction for them the way they like to meditate. Whereas other people need that feedback to know they're doing good, as you say, for motivation. Exactly. So the vast majority of people love birds. And I will get random texts out of nowhere like, my grandfather just tried me. He got 87 birds, <laughs> which is a lot. Um, and people just get very excited about birds. And then every now and again, I would hear somebody say, I hate those damn birds. I'm really, really calm. And then they start going. Right, right. Because there is just that little, like, I don't know, it's a temptation to start listening to the birds, which I guess would is starting to interfere with the mindfulness. But, you know, it's in order to have neurofeedback, I mean, you guess you need... It's worth talking about the birds for a second because that temptation to listen to the birds is actually part of the experience. Huh. So everybody who complained and said, those damn birds... <laughs> It's kind of funny because those damn birds are actually part of what's challenging you. So the goal of mindfulness and meditation, you will ultimately be triggered by something. You might be rewarded by it, and then you get really excited about this reward, and then the reward leaves. You're trying to move to a place of equanimity where you are not pulled either towards a positive reaction or a negative reaction towards something. And so these birds are actually there to subtly reinforce these lessons of equanimity. But if somebody's not ready for them, you can turn off the volume. Right. And as you get better and you get more birds, you'll basically be more challenged. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And more okay. rewarded, which is also your challenge to not get excited by those rewards. Yeah. So I was wondering, what have you, have you learned things from using the app? Because it's been out for a while now, and I guess you have a lot of data from people. I don't know if there's anything you can talk about that you've learned about in terms of how people learn and how long does it take to learn to get better at mindfulness-based meditation or anything like that? Um, so one of the things that we've learned is that people get better. So, I mean, we can see people's calm scores and how they improve over time and track those improvements. And it's, it's astonishing. People really stick with it and get better. We've done some fun diagno- diagnosis, like, which is the calmest city. I have to, I will check back and send you an email and let you know which city it was. That was, that was a fun little study that we did. We've also learned the different ways that this can make an impact in people's lives. I've gotten just tremendous emails from people. The first one I ever got was a girl who was 27 years old with ADHD. She'd stopped taking medication four years ago, and she said within three or four days of using it, her parents had noticed a difference. And then within three weeks of doing it, this to her was not a game changer. It was a life changer. So when you give people this small ability to learn that they can actually manage and direct their own mind, but extraordinary things start happening in their lives. You go and look at our Amazon comments. Um, there's a woman who's husband of cancer, and she was using these to manage the stress of his cancer. There's another woman who had heart palpitations and was using these to, to manage her heart palpitations, and she stopped having them, stopped taking your medication. When I hear those things, I start to say, nope, keep taking your medication. Like, <laughs> this is not a medical device. It's not indicated for this. The things that people are discovering about themselves and how they can learn to to manage themselves through non-medical, easy-to-implement tools is pretty amazing. Yeah, and so you're, I know from your TED presentation, you're a big believer in uh, building self-awareness. Could you talk a little bit about that and what it means to you? Uh, self-awareness is about being able to know yourself in ways that are meaningful to you. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of navel-gazing that one can do that's not necessarily useful and quantified self tends to get um, very caught up in data. To me, the data is not the important thing. It's our own human experience. And data often takes us away from that human experience, which is why we wanted to create a tool that just was audio-based, real-time feedback so that you can learn about yourself in real time in this way that's really intuitive and really 
quite emotionally lovely. As a psychotherapist, and it was a psychotherapist part of starting Interaxon, my job was to help people understand themselves. And we have so many things that govern our reactions every day that we have no idea about. The cliched example, that fight that you had with your boyfriend that comes in and causes you to snap at your boss or your coworker or your child, um, and you don't know why is the thing that causes stress and grief and strife and undoes the kind of you know, lovely world that most people are trying to build for themselves. And so when you have the ability to know about your own internal state and your own internal motivators, these motivators that previously had been secret motivators, hiding deep in your subconscious and below the surface and just guiding your action without you even realizing it, when you have the ability to begin to dig in there and to decompose your actions into those subparts that truly are the motivations for your actions, you can live a much better, much happier, much more pleasant, calmer life. And you're not creating um, you know, drama and distress and perpetuating discomforts that are your own internal discomfort by putting them on somebody else in ways that you may not have previously realized. Thank you for that, because um, something I feel is very important too, and obviously the, the Muse device can help to give you these kinds of insights. Uh, so do you recommend people do it at a specific time in the day? One of the things I've noticed is that my morning sessions are always a lot calmer than my evening sessions after I've been working or I've been like basically after I've been working and doing things like that. Is that very typical? Is that the kind of thing which you, you'd expect? So often people's morning sessions are calmer than their evening sessions, yes. And you can do news anytime. So the right time to news is the time when it fits best into your day. So some people do them in the morning and set themselves up for the day. Other people take it to work and will use it when they have a little break and they need to focus or when they've had an issue and they just need to calm down. And then another set of people do it in the evening um, to shed the day or right before bed to improve their sleep. So have you heard of people, like you were talking about earlier, like if something upsets you in your life, maybe you're not that aware of how much of an influence it's having on you. Have you heard of case examples where people are kind of using it just to like get back in touch with themselves after something? And it could be maybe they had a big dose of caffeine and they're not sure like how much of an effect that has on their ability to focus and relax and so on. Or maybe it's like when they're in contact with a certain boss, which they find a bit disagreeable. Have you heard of examples where people are using it just to kind of touch base with themselves? Yeah. So uh, and to be clear, news is not going to tell you that you're sad or news is not going to tell you you don't like your boss. All you're getting is this feedback of focused or not focused. But it's that action of learning to quiet your mind and look inside yourself and that action of knowing that you can actually observe your own thoughts and take the time and space internally to focus on your own thoughts that leads to those insights and that leads to the space so in the past where your boss had said something really annoying and then you feel the anger rise, you don't just immediately jump on him and, and respond in a way that's probably going to threaten your job. Um, you're able to take the time to then recognize what's going on internally and respond appropriately. But there are, we have a bunch of quantified selfers who do some things like track their nervous response vis-a-vis caffeine, et cetera. Yeah. Are there other things like caffeine, which you would say typically disturb it, like people should just be aware of because if if they're using this and they're upset with their scores because they're not getting where they should be, are there any things that they could be doing in their life which might be interfering? Caffeine 
I think it changes a, a relatively personal interactional score. It's not always a bad thing. And for some people, caffeine really helps you focus. Um, for other people who are over-caffeinated, caffeine makes it very difficult to focus. So it's not yes or no caffeine. It's the, the dose that is actually making you productive. Yeah, that would be interesting. Like potentially the mindfulness, your score in Muse might translate to productivity in, in some areas as well. So they could tell if caffeine was having a positive because we all take caffeine and we think it helps. But I think it could help in some situations for some people and for others, it may not be helping, like making us more distracted. So that could be a correlation there. Yeah, potentially. It's a, it's a fun thing to think about. A fun experiment for someone to run. Great. I mean, are there any others you can think of offhand, which people could be aware of that might interfere or have an influence? Anything that has really aroused you that day. So, you know, if you're your heart is beating and you're anxious about something, it's going to show up in your calm score. And that's that's what calm has been teaching you to combat. How about exercise? Would that have an, an impact? I haven't run an experiment looking specifically at the effect of exercise on Muse, but we have quite a number of athletes who use Muse. So we know a lot about the experience of Muse on exercise. So we've done programs where you Muse prior to your workout and people report significantly better workouts. They're able to push themselves further. And then we have like a good handful of Olympic athletes who've been using these. Most recently, I was talking to, may not know this as a Canadian, skating is really valid and <laughs> exciting here. And so Brian Orster is a Canadian Olympic skating championship, and he's been tra- training to amazing young skaters, uh, Javier Anam. They have been using these prior to the World Championships, which just happened a few weeks ago. Javier came in gold in the world <laughs> championships after his music, which is amazing. It's competitive advantage. <laughs> yeah, competitive advantage. And Nam is, he's 15 or 16 years old. And I went and I spoke to him after his world championships. We sat down and he was telling me, I had no idea how he'd been using it, but he said that he used every day. Prior to using, he would be really part of being introduced to me is he was, you know, very distracted and nervous and like felt all these incredible social pressures on him being so young and having to perform. So he'd been using all the time to get that down and to learn to manage his own anxiety. And he's used 15 minutes before every performance. And he used 15 minutes before his performance at the world where he came in fifth at the age of 15 or 16 in the world's men's skating championship. <laughs> I heard this like a week ago and I was like, I was overwhelmed, like just kind of beside myself. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, there's, there's so much research on mindfulness, um, proving these kind of things. It's, it's great to hear examples where it's actually happening in the, in the real world. For the people at home, I guess there's a few things that could be influencing that. First of all, like neuromuscular control is basically driven, driven by the brain. So even people lifting weights, they can do better. Like they, uh, people will use nootropics, for example, as well. If you're improving your brain, you're going to have more control and you're going to be basically stronger. Um, and then you go all the coordination in these complex sports and everything like that, which obviously is a lot more uh, brain driven as well. So there's definitely a very direct relationship there. Thank you for those examples. Really interesting. If someone was looking to learn more about your topic, are there any books or presentations on the subject, like uh, your TED Talk, for instance, or is there anything else related to the Muse and some of its applications uh, we could look up? So you can always go to our website, choosemuse.com. We're going to go through a website rebuild pretty soon with more and more information and resources there for you. And then, of course, there is the entire canon of mindfulness and meditation research I'd love talks by folks like John Kabat-Zinn, who's got, as a good opener, a great Google Tech Talk. 
to start learning about mindfulness and the impact that it can have in your life. If you're looking for something really, really accessible, Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier, is really fun. Tracks a journalist, you know, sort of narcissistic, self-involved journalist who came to mindfulness. So lots of good resources out there. All right. Thank you for that. And if people want to connect with you, are you on Twitter or what's the best way to connect with you and follow what you're up to? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Ariel underscore Garten. Actually, no, Ariel.Garten. Anyway, if you type in Ariel Garten, you'll find me. And news is on Twitter at Choose News. Okay, great, great. Is there anyone besides yourself you'd recommend uh, in this area? Basically, like you're saying, I guess you already those those references you already gave out would fit that. Yeah, sure. Um, Meng from Google wrote an amazing book, Search Inside Yourself. It's sort of an engineer's perspective to mindfulness. Alan Wallace is always a great uh, great one to look into. Daniel Goleman has a great book on focus. It sort of ties neuroscience and mindfulness and focus. I can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it definitely sounds like you're passionate about this stuff. So I'm also interested in just in more general, like um, whether it's with Muse and meditation or in more general, are there metrics or biomarkers you you track for your own body on a routine basis and, and, and things that you use to keep just keep an eye on yourself and you take an interest in? For myself, I, as I said, I'm not into uh, data-driven quantification in the same way because for me it's about having a natural human experience and data is there to support it. Definitely, I'm aware of the amount of exercise that I do. I don't count my steps, but I count the amount of time that I spend in activities like walking, dancing, ice skating, uh, you know, climbing, etc. Is that through a, a device or is it? Or is it? I just have weekly goals for myself, and I just do it on a calendar basis. Are there any lab tests or anything like blood markers or anything you you look at from time to time, or is that all good for you? Oxygen levels was one that I was having fun with for a while. I became very interested in the relationship between oxygen and um, both cognitive and physical performance. So I have a SpO2, just a little blood oxygen reader that you clip onto your finger, connects to my iPhone. And so I've, I've tracked my blood oxygen levels in really fun places, including up in planes. And it's uh, also interesting to then start to look at people of different ages in the same situation and tracking their blood oxygen levels and seeing how they're, they're doing relative to myself. And of course, simple the ones like heart heart rate. Yeah, I played around that a little bit as well. And well, I, I didn't really find a lot of change in myself. Did you find some interesting things about that, like different situations? I, did, I didn't try in the plane one, though, which would be the more extreme one, right? And definitely with altitude, the change becomes very, very clear. And then when I'm fatigued, I see a change in my blood oxygen levels. What would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use data to make better decisions about their health, performance or longevity, whatever they're interested in? I would say focus on your goals and choose data metrics that are going to directly lead you to those goals. If fitness is the goal of your step counting is definitely the easiest and simplest way to start. And for absolutely any individual who wants to motivate themselves to lose a little weight and get a little fitter, get a Fitbit, Jawbone up, Misfit, Shine, any of the above, and, and just Start to engage in the understanding of your activity and how that impacts your life. And simply the act of beginning that correlation will be motivating you to improve. Yeah. It sounds like you see the, uh, the greatest benefit as kind of accountability, like a, a motivation for a lot of these devices. Yes. For level one, yes. I mean, if you are athlete in the 90th percentile, you're well beyond motivation and you're really trying to optimize. For the vast, vast majority of individuals, motivation is the thing that's most required to get you to engage in any of these improvement activities. Great, Ariel. Thank you for that. It's uh, interesting. I certainly agree. Like a lot of it's about motivation, accountability, 
kind of making sure you're moving in the right direction. Thank you for all of your uh, tips on Muse and like giving us some insights into how it works. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the time. I'm happy to be on the podcast with you. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.